Exodus 4, uh, as you have been working through Exodus and will continue to. So Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And the Lord, he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And again it became a staff in his hand, that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he, Moses, put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become like blood, or will become blood, rather, on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he, Moses, said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses, 
So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we come with the confidence that you are among us. You have promised to be enthroned on the praises of your people, and indeed, you are working through your Spirit, through the Word, as a means of grace to us. We come not to hear man to speak or to have experiences ourselves, but no, we come to worship the God of the universe, the one who has loved us by revealing himself. Bless our time in your Word. Teach us, Lord, through this story, through what has happened in Exodus 4. It is to you we look, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our Redeemer. It's in Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. What is the last promise that you made that you didn't keep? What is the last promise you made that you didn't keep? I promise, kids, we'll go play outside later. I promise this won't take long. I promise I will be there on time. I promise I won't ever say or do that again. If you kept track of your broken promises, how long would that list be, perhaps? What is the last promise that you made that you kept? Perhaps you did take the kids out later, right? Perhaps it didn't take that long, or you really were on time, right? Perhaps you really haven't said or did that thing again yet. We might remember big promises in our lives, those promises that we perhaps can't keep even daily, right? Promises maybe like, I promise to love you, right, in sickness and in health, or in, uh, for richer or for poorer. But we all know that we live in a world where promises are not kept, and they can't be kept. We are about to enter a voting season where politicians' promises will abound, right? Perhaps with little intent or ability to actually bring them to pass. If we indeed could find someone who could keep all of their promises, who could be faithful forever, wouldn't we be happy to follow that person We know that it is not us who can do that. And sadly, we know it's not our politicians either. We know that we and they have our own eyes on our own interests. We know that we look at ourselves uh, rather than others or on God. We know that we and they are often half-hearted in their allegiances. We do not give ourselves fully to the promise we make or to those that we are to serve in this life. Why all the talk of promises? Because the book of Exodus is about God keeping his promises, his covenants. See, the Lord is being forever faithful to the covenant that he made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, Israel, and all indeed who trust in him by faith. 
And so Moses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote this book to Israel. Indeed, actually, after all the events we read of in Exodus, Moses records this after those. As Israel stands on the edge, looking to enter into the promised land, the one that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so Exodus 4, that we read today, is meant to expose something. It's meant to expose our self-serving, our half-hearted obedience and service. And yet it's supposed to cause in us confidence. Confidence to serve the one who always keeps his promises. The one who is forever faithful, we'll say. To say it even simpler still, Exodus 4 shows that the Lord is forever faithful to his covenant children. The Lord is forever faithful to his covenant children. So we, we must serve wholeheartedly as sons and daughters. We come wholeheartedly to serve as sons and daughters. Well, there is a lot that happens in this passage uh, as you listened along and maybe scratched your head at a few points. Um, But Rob was happy that it was mine as he preached last week. So here we are, Exodus 4. So how do we serve the Lord in this way? Look with me. We're going to look at this first section in verses 1 through 17. We serve in this way through self-forgetfulness. We serve God wholeheartedly through self-forgetfulness. And we forget We forget who we are or ourselves when we remember who God is, that he is faithful to his people who trust in him. Now, this passage started out in a bit of a strange place, right? We we jumped into the middle of a conversation that happened back in Exodus 3 or started in Exodus 3 between the Lord and the burning bush and Moses. And so, right, God had, had heard and seen his people's sufferings and he had not forgotten them. He promises to them to keep the covenant he made to Abraham, to be their God and they to be his people. And he is going to do this, how? By sending Moses. To send Moses with the message and to say, Pharaoh, release God's people. Release Israel from captivity so that they can go serve, worship, live with their Lord. And so here we come to Exodus 4.1. And if Moses' questions up to this point had seemed reasonable. They were questions like, well, who am I? And who are you? At this point, they now begin to take a self-focused turn, or at least reveal his heart in this. So though the Lord, back in chapter 3, verse 18, had said, Moses, the Israelite leaders will believe you, what does Moses ask in verse 1? What if they don't? Well, the Lord graciously, patiently provides three signs to give Moses confidence that they indeed will. That first sign, it's Moses' staff turning into a snake and then back into a staff. Now, why this? In Egypt, the rod or staff is the very symbol of authority. And the cobra snake in Egypt was signifying Pharaoh's claim to divine power, to sovereignty, and to his royalty. Even Pharaoh would have a snake carved into his crown, a very figure. And so this first sign is showing that the God king, right? Pharaoh seeing himself as divine, as does Egypt, the sign is showing that the God king Pharaoh and his power are utterly in God's hands. 
That second sign is of Moses' hand turning leprous, right? And then coming back out as, as pure flesh or again healed or clean. And so leprosy could be several different diseases, but either way, leprosy is well known in Egypt. And it's highly infectious and highly incurable. It's terrifying. And so here in this sign, it's showing that all flesh in Egypt belongs to God, right? It's all under his power. And that third sign involved the very lifeblood of Egypt's audacious wealth. What gave Egypt their wealth? Well, it's the river. It's the water in the desert, right? And so by Moses turning water into blood, this shows that God is controlling Egypt's entire economic stability, right? The Lord like that can end it. And so this shows that the Lord is, uh, is going to prove to Israelite leaders that he is in control and that Moses has been sent by him, right, to them, that God will defeat Egypt. That's what he's showing through these three signs. Now, despite the amazing uh, nature of these signs, what does Moses do in verse 10? He says, my Lord, I cannot speak so well. I paraphrase. And he says, you and you, God, haven't fixed my speech even since we've been talking. You haven't even made me a better speaker yet, Lord. Now, we're not certain if Moses had an actual speech impediment or, or just had an inability to speak intellectually or persuasively. Or perhaps it's just simply an exaggerated insecurity in Moses. It's not clear. But whichever it is, it is clear where Moses' attention is. Who's it fixed on? Right? Not on God. Not on the message, no. It's on man. It's on himself. Well, how does the Lord respond? Graciously. Patiently. Who made man's mouth? Who makes man deaf or mute, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth. We should pause here because we have to acknowledge that God precisely calls those who seem entirely insufficient for the work. That is who God calls. Why? Because in such work, God gets the glory. You don't. Because in such work, we will see the glories of God working through those who are supposedly unable to do it, or unable, rather. So Moses' real or supposed inabilities, or ours, right, for that matter, they're not liabilities. No, they're God-given. God has given those to you. So Moses, in verse 13, he finally lays all of his cards down, right? He speaks plainly. I don't want to go. That's what he's saying. Please send someone else. Now, understandably, a perfect God who is slow to anger is angry. It's kindled, it's roused like a lion ready to pounce. And yet, what response comes? It's actually gracious. It's patient, again. The Lord commissions Moses' brother, Aaron, someone Moses knows, for Aaron to come and to join to speak for Moses. And he says that, He will be with both of their mouths. He will teach them what to say. And the Lord will not let Moses derail his faithfulness, even if Moses Moses refuses to forget himself. So the Lord ends by telling Moses to take with him the staff 
And that staff, the, the sign that is in that staff is it's representing God's very power, his presence, and his promise. Moses goes with God in hand. And so as you think back to Exodus 3, up through here to verse 17 in Exodus 4, the calling of Moses here, it's meant to show God's persistent faithfulness. His persistent faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham. His forever faithfulness to the promise to his people. Moses says, I can't do it and I don't want to's. They can't upend God's good purpose. My, uh, my wife and I, we've been doing reading lessons with our, our children for some years, and apparently it's through many trials and tribulations that children learn how to read um, from personal experience. But we all know that some children, or even us, we excel at some things. We struggle in other things. It's entirely normal. One of our sweet children who excels in other areas has, has struggled in reading. And at times, with tear-filled eyes, this child has said, Dad, this is hard for me. I can't do it. We encourage her, or them, the child. We encourage the child, whoever it may be. I don't even remember. Uh, no, we, we encourage the child. And we say, you can do it, right? The, some of the best things in life are hard. Right? God is teaching us through this, so on and so forth. But it's usually then that the true objection comes out. I don't want to do it. Maybe that sounds familiar to us. It's because we do it, right? In the face of being called to do something difficult, we begin with, well, I can't do that. There must be someone who is better equipped. Oh, oh, have you asked so-and-so? Let me get their number. Have you checked the church directory? If pressed, we may even shout, well, I don't want to do it. Our eyes are on ourselves. Our insecurities flare. I don't have such a good memory. I don't sing very well. My past, it's too broken. I am damaged goods. What if I don't know what to say? What if I sound stupid? What if, like Moses, I don't talk so good? See, without remembering God's forever faithfulness to his people, to you who trust in him, to end up working all things to his perfect plan, you and I are prone to embrace our insecurities. We are prone to look at ourselves and serve ourselves instead of the Lord who is faithful to us. It's by the grace of God that you need to receive your inabilities, whether it's social, physical, emotional, or mental. These are not curses. Even though some of these things in your stories perhaps even have come about by others sin against you, and we aren't, we aren't saying that is okay, but we are saying that promise that God will use right, all things for good for those who he's called, even the sin against us, even your inabilities, God will use for good so that he might be glorified through you, that he'll be faithful to his people. One thing I might challenge you to do if you haven't is memorize the first three questions and answers to the, uh, <clears throat> to the Westminster Shorter Catechism for kids, okay? So this is your test for parents and children in case you know it, but it's not too hard, right? Those questions are, who made you? God, yeah. What else did God make? All things, amen. Why? Why did God make you in all things? For his glory. For his glory. 
for his glory. The Lord made me, all of me. He didn't fail, no. He made me. And how he made me, inabilities and all, deaf or mute, seeing or blind, is to reveal his glory as it is in heaven on earth. So by the grace of God, forget yourself. Remember his faithfulness instead to you who trust in him. And with doing that, you can serve him by faith with a whole heart like sons and daughters do. Well, we must not only forget ourself in order to serve him, but our loving, worshiping, serving, it must be with a whole heart or a whole life. As we turn to uh, verse 18, <clears throat> excuse me, we see Moses uh, respectfully, yet sheepishly, return to his father-in-law Jethro. And he asks him for permission to leave the family shepherding business, right? To take his wife and his children back to Egypt. And this indeed actually honors Jethro, right? Who took him in, who gave him a job. It's a good father-in-law. But Moses is also sheepish. Why? Because we're seeing he's unwilling to be honest of why he's actually going back to Egypt. Moses' obedience is half-hearted. And yet, what does God say here? I would say it's, it's gracious and it's patient. He responds to Moses. He says, all those people who wanted to kill you, they're dead. Go back. Right? He beckons Moses on to come to Egypt. And so Moses, with his family by his side and God's promise in hand with the staff, God's presence with him, he embarks for Egypt. We pause on that journey. And we have this conversation between God and Moses as they're on the way. In verse 21, look with me there, the Lord tells Moses to go and do those same three signs for Pharaoh. However, it's to a different effect. Rather than the softening, it is going to cause hardening, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do this, we might ask? See, we tend, or when we ask this, we tend to view humanity as innocent until proven guilty. Even Pharaoh, we give him the benefit of the doubt. He can't be that bad, that guy. No, but the scriptures declare this instead. It says, no one is good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. That means every human is guilty of sin or rebellion. From the day we are born to the day we die, we are steeped in sin. Or without hope of innocence, unless, unless God would intervene. So in Pharaoh's case, it gets even worse because he literally sees himself as a rival God. Right? He sees himself as a deity and is treated as such. He does this by abusing and enslaving an entire people without a second thought. In Exodus 1, he does this by putting to death all their firstborn sons. He sees himself as God. Romans 9 quotes, actually, Exodus chapter 9, and it quotes God saying that, I will raise you up, Pharaoh, that I will show my power in you, right? By bringing judgment on Pharaoh, who indeed is guilty of his sin, God is going to harden him so that he might show his power and his glory. And you know what else comes in Exodus 9? He says, so that the ends of the earth will know that I am Lord. It's even in judgment. It's God in hardening this rival God's heart that the ends of the earth will know that there is a God 
in Israel, that he's faithful to his people. And if you stand against him, you will fall. The Lord goes on to say about Pharaoh, he says, if Pharaoh doesn't release my firstborn son, I paraphrase, and he's referring to Israel here, a people, the Lord is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. Now, firstborn can refer, right, to an actual firstborn son, like Pharaoh's, but it also regularly means status or an inheritance, the the one who's going to get the inheritance. This is important because when you come to Jesus and it calls him firstborn, he's not born uh, as a deity, right? God has always existed. He's eternal. Jesus isn't a firstborn like that. And so God is coming to this rival God, if you will, and he's saying, give me back my son that you've taken or I will take your son. I will take your son. The Lord treats Pharaoh like a rival god, right? And he's going to war against Pharaoh. You'll likely hear more of this or see more of this in the coming weeks as the battle commences between the gods. Of course, Pharaoh is no real god, but you understand what I'm saying there. So now, if those three verses are uncomfortable or confusing at all, prepare yourself. Many find verses 23 through 26 to be this puzzling scene, right? God, who has been gracious, patient, now shows up at Moses' doorstep to do what? To kill him. What? Why? What is happening here? I want to remind us, what is God being faithful to? It's to his covenant, to his promise, to who? It was a covenant of grace to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, to Israel, to be their God and they to be his people. And God says, here's how you'll know that you're my people. Here's, what, here's your end of it. Put this mark upon yourself. In Genesis 17, God gave circumcision as the sign and the seal to mark them as his people. And Genesis 17, 14 says that any male who isn't circumcised will be circumcised out of the people, will be cut off of the people because he's broken the covenant, because he's disregarded and ignored God's command. You see, Moses had not circumcised at least his oldest son, Gershom. This is an incredibly profound scene for us to just sit in for a moment. Moses doubted, he protested, he pleaded to God, To his face, I don't want to do it. And God did not kill him or did not seek to, as it says. But here, to ignore the precious sign and seal that shows that God is your God, that you are his people, that is a serious offense to God. We do not often think on our signs and seals in the New Testament baptism and the Lord's Supper in this way. We might remember in Corinth when they took the Lord's Supper in in an ungodly way, what happened? They got sick and died, right? There are covenant curses to the people of God when they refuse to bear or use or enjoy the signs the way that God has given them to us. And so in this scene, this is a serious sin, and God comes out to cut off Moses. But instead, I want you to see a wholehearted, faithful response. God allows the fierce faithfulness of Zipporah, who believed upon and served Moses' God, as her own. As she circumcises her son, and as she touches his skin to Moses' feet, 
And this in some way shows that she has interceded on behalf of her husband. This is dealing with uh, half-hearted obedience of Moses and whole-hearted obedience of Zipporah as God accepts that intercession for Moses. And here in this, here in this, Moses is now prepared, it seems. Though it seems culturally strange to us to read this, this is an incredibly important part of even Moses' deciding to walk with the Lord, to actually be faithful, is by God threatening to kill him. So Moses is now finally ready for the mission, it would seem. Well, verses 18 through 26 are showing us this, that a hard heart or even a half-hearted obedience towards God is to be against him. You've likely heard that statement, you're either with us or against us, right? Countless political leaders have said this. Benito uh, Mussolini said this in the lead-up to World War II to the Italian fascists. Uh, George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton, even opposite sides in our country on things, declared this after 9-11, right? They said, you're either with us or you are with the terrorists. You see, in most cases, this claim creates a false dilemma, right? It's not this simple. There's not just two sides to things. Perhaps the nation of Switzerland has uh, shown us how not to get into the false dilemma, as they've had centuries of, of neutrality in wars and so on. But there is one place that this statement is not a false dilemma. That is in trusting and serving the Lord. There is no such thing as Switzerland neutrality with God. There's no such thing as a half-hearted obedience with God. Jesus agrees with this. In Matthew 12, 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. So that gives you the question this morning, whom are you serving? Are you here this morning because you've been dragged along by family or friends, but you know your heart is hard? It's hostile to a faithful Lord. Today, ask God to soften, not harden, your heart. Are you like Moses with Jethro, being slow, being slow to declare your allegiances? When questioned why you live as you do, are you sheepish to name the Lord? Perhaps you don't live in a way where people even question why you live the way you do. That too can be half-hearted obedience. Perhaps like Moses, you maybe have disregarded or are disregarding or thinking lightly of the initiating sign and seal that God has given to the church to mark you as his own people, baptism. Many today think of baptism as only, only an outward uh, profession or proclamation of an inward transformation. And that is a part of the pie, but it's not all of it. Baptism, like circumcision, is meant to say more about God, his promises, what he's done, than about what you're saying you will do. Baptism is about saying what God does. See, God said to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children, and I'll mark it in your flesh. And Peter repeats it in some in Acts 2. He says the promise is for who? It's for you and for your children and for those who are far off. This is not a topic we can talk about just in Exodus 4. That's another sermon, another conversation. So the application is to ask your elders and pastor further about said conversation. But, but it is meant to get us to think about how we handle baptism, how we think about baptism even with our children. Right? It's this mark, this covenant mark that says that God will be God to us and to them. There's nowhere that the promise is repealed to Abraham and to his people 
throughout the scriptures. The Lord will be faithful, obviously, to those who trust him, and faithful to bear the marks, but also to teach your children uh, as they bear the marks. All this together is to say that we must flee half-hearted service, fleeing love or worship to God that is half-hearted. You can pray this little neat prayer with John Calvin. He says this, My heart I give you, Lord, eagerly and entirely. My heart I give you, Lord, eagerly and entirely. We come to the last four verses in our shortest point. It's here that we again see that the Lord is forever faithful to his covenant children. So we can serve him with confidence as sons and as daughters. In verse 27, the Lord sends Aaron to Moses. Together they show and tell the Israelite leaders all that God told them to. The Israelite leaders are flooded with gratitude and with confidence because the Lord has not forgotten them. They believe, they bow down, and they worship their God. In bowing down, and that's to lay prostrate. It's this great, the greatest sign of worshiping God is to do that in their minds in Israel. And so they do this, and it shows that they are prepared to serve the Lord, who's been faithful to them. Not just as subjects to a king, not just as servants to a master, but as sons and daughters to a father. Right? Remember that firstborn son language. And so when we read Exodus, as we come to the end of the passage, we need to remember that Moses is the one recording this. When? As they stand on the edge looking into the promised land. And Moses is is willing to recount all of God's faithfulness, yes, but even all of his blunders, right? His self-serving, half-hearted obedience. And he's likely also pleading with Israel here, remember, remember how God was faithful to you. Remember how you bowed down and worshipped this God. Even as we read Exodus here, as we feel the distance, right, from the time in which it is being written, the book is still given to us by God today for our reading, hearing, believing, and serving God. We are to read Exodus on this side of Jesus Christ's life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And what are we meant to see? We're meant to see how much better Jesus is, how much better his rescue is, and even how much better of a firstborn Jesus is. Later on in Deuteronomy 18, Moses writes that another prophet will rise up like Moses, who will come and the people are to listen to. Peter in Acts 3 says, that was Jesus. And so we could even see it from the text. When God called Moses, what did Moses say? Send someone else, please. Hebrews 10, 7 records Jesus' response. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Moses half-heartedly obeyed, nearly leading to his own death. Jesus wholeheartedly obeyed so that he could face even your death deserved for sin. Moses led Israel out of captivity and service of a serpent-crowned Pharaoh. Jesus led all who trust in him out of captivity to their sin. And he defeated the ancient serpent, right? That wannabe God, Satan himself. We should read Exodus and see Jesus is better. His rescue is better for all of us, for all of you who will trust in him as Lord and Savior. But there's more still. Jesus came as that true and better firstborn. 
He's better than Israel because he always obeyed. He always served the Lord. And this is actually a significant comparison for us to see. Jesus Christ was the firstborn of creation and resurrection, uh, Paul says in Colossians 1. Right? Just as he had talked about Israel, or God had called Israel a firstborn, Jesus is the better one because Jesus lives perfectly without sin so that he can take our sin right, on the cross. And then God does something. He counts Jesus' perfect record of service, of righteousness to us who believe. Jesus, who became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, so that Jesus' perfect record of service would be counted to you. Paul even says in Galatians 3, you who believe in Christ, you are counted as the firstborn in Christ. You get the inheritance. You get the status you become sons and daughters forevermore. Jesus is a better firstborn because he purifies you and makes you a son or daughter to a perfect heavenly father. When we see and we understand this grand picture of God's faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham, to Moses, to Israel, and the Jesus, who, Jesus the one who fulfills it all, we must be like the Israelite leaders, standing in awe, full of confidence, in God's faithfulness, knowing he hasn't forgotten us. Because his promises have always been and always will be kept, we must serve him with confidence like sons and daughters. Your inheritance is God through the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. And we come to him this morning. You come to him not as just a servant to a king, right, or a subject to a master, no, but as sons and daughters to a father. Let me close simply with these words from this great hymn, Whatever My God Ordains is Right, because it exemplifies this confidence in a sovereign God who makes the mouth, who makes you blind or deaf, who is always faithful. It says this, Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and wherefore to him... I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, here my stand shall be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, so to him, I leave it all. You see, the Lord is forever faithful to his covenant children. If you trust in Christ, he is faithful to you forever through Jesus Christ, so you can and must serve him through self-forgetfulness, through whole or with wholeheartedness, and with a confidence that comes only to sons and daughters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we come to be comforted, to be encouraged, and to be called to serve. God, you must complete and perfect the work that you have called us to. We look to Jesus Christ, the one who has completed and perfected it all, and we come in faith alone. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.